0: Coronavirus has changed all of our lives, but how will it impact the future? Does this change everything? I'm Matt Reese. On this episode of Does This Change Everything, data privacy. Will the coronavirus cause governments or other institutions to track our data more deeply than they did in the past so that they can better track the infection? And once the coronavirus crisis is over, will our privacy have been eroded? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? We'll find out from Dennis Kessler, who heads the Data Governance Unit at the European Investment Bank, the EU bank. Dennis, does the coronavirus crisis change the future of digital privacy?
1: It doesn't necessarily change it, but it will inevitably. Uh, As far as privacy is concerned, Uh, There's legislation that's been introduced, most notably uh, the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, by Europe, which has emerged as the global gold standard uh, in such legislation. Now, there are a lot of people writing and concerned about the fact that the measures which need to be introduced to combat the spread of the virus involve increasing amounts of surveillance increasing amounts of intrusion into people's private lives and their movements, especially through the tracking applications uh, that are being developed to be installed on people's smartphones. Now, this shouldn't cause a concern because everyone is going to be agreeing that the preservation of life and public health is absolutely the priority. But the big question uh, is what will happen afterwards. And once a lot more safeguards have been Uh, eroded or compromised once a lot more personal data is in the hands of governments and private corporations what will happen to it
0: one of the uh, medical experts on another of the episodes in this podcast series said that he hopes medical treatment will become more digitalized because it'll help doctors deal with pandemics as well as other diseases uh, in a very quick efficient way That means doctors accessing our medical data digitally and you can't get much more private than medical data. Do you think it's inevitable that we are going to have to accept a broader digitalization of our privacy? I think it
1: is inevitable, but the the real question is not broader digitalization of privacy, but about aspects of our lives, all aspects of our lives, all the, the ways in which we live and the services we consume and the services that are provided to us. Data protection, data privacy protection, and the legislation and regulations are in place to, make, to try to make sure uh, that these services can be provided in ways that don't compromise uh, our privacy. But we still seek to find the balance with uh, all the benefits that we get. So we, we take for granted interacting with our banks online, shopping online, storing personal documents, storing photos, uh, consuming music all of those activities leave, leave traces. And that's not even to mention uh, social media. It, it seems obvious to us that there are data traces and evidence of our digital activities. And we seem to be continuing to be happy to do that, knowing that the, the data is out there. But we seek reassurance from government authorities uh, that the data is not being abused and it's being stored and protected in ways that we would expect in the kind of society that we live in. It it seems absolutely obvious that anyone seeking medical treatment would want to make sure that medical practitioners have available their medical records uh, containing both medical history and also any alerts about medication they're taking, uh, any allergies. Uh, It's fine to be able to recall all that information when you're there and conscious uh, seeking emergency treatment, Uh, but It's very beneficial for practitioners to to know what the person's medical history is, especially if they don't have all that information available or they're not able to share it themselves. There's no question that the future of medical care uh, lies with digitalization, digitalization of personal health data at its heart. Uh, And people receiving improved medical treatments would support that, but they would still expect that the powers that be are making sure that the right safeguards are in place to ensure that that sensitive data is only made available when it's needed to the people that need it to provide those services.
0: Well, let's talk about some of those, uh, the idea of safeguards. You talked about the apps that some governments are thinking of introducing as a way to manage the end of the, the coronavirus lockdown. How broadly are those being considered and how likely are we to see them introduced?
1: Well, it's happening right now. Uh, Singapore was, was an early example of developing an app that would trace people's contacts uh, if they were found to have been diagnosed as positive. It was, it's been well accepted by society in Singapore, although the adoption is low uh, it's, too, it's estimated that it needs to be at about 60% of adoption to be effective. And the, the actual take-up is much lower than that. The UK government is, and the National Health Service is developing a contact tracing app uh, that's about to be launched and this will use Bluetooth technology. The idea being uh, that if someone is found to be positive, they can find out who had recent contact with that person Uh, and notify them so that those people that might not be experiencing any symptoms to find out if they can get tested and if so, start self isolating. It's generally accepted by epidemiologists and medical professionals that this is the key. Quick contact tracing is the key to containing the virus. The challenge is what will happen to all the data? Firstly, what kind of data is being captured? Is it personally identifiable data that can then be used by private companies in the future to identify a person's movements uh, and their what they consume where they've been what they like to do uh, and how long will it be kept and used for what purposes
0: is that really what this is all about the how private companies would use it because when you read about this in in newspapers there's always this uh, this orwellian fear that the government or a government will for example say oh you're a political dissident, so we're going to tell tell your coronavirus app that you are infected and therefore you have to stay home, so effectively put you under house arrest. But actually, it seems that you're saying it's more a matter of our data going to private companies who will then use it to get money out of us, essentially.
1: There are two aspects to this. The f- example that you've just given is, not, is no longer science fiction. It's already been done. It's already happened in China. Uh, classification based on data profiles uh, has been applied to minorities in China to restrict their movement uh, and there are already there's already anecdotal evidence that people that have been given the the green status in China which allows them to leave their home or move out of their registered city uh, there are cases where erroneous yellow or red ratings which restrict their movement have been placed on them uh, for due to technical errors, but they, the people haven't been able to get that removed uh, because the processes for making a complaint or making a complete, uh, uh, an appeal are not clear. In addition to that, there would be very little accountability in such a society if a politician or the police, who have access to this data, by the way, uh, decide to put a red a red marker on someone, even if it has nothing to do with their health status. So these are not just fears about the future. This is happening now in parts of the world. The question is, what are the safeguards to prevent those steps being introduced in supposedly Western liberal democracies? If the platforms and infrastructure is already being built uh, and adopted by citizens.
0: Well, so there we, we're talking now about the, a time of of emergency. But once the threat of coronavirus recedes, as we hope it will. Will it be possible to roll back these changes in the privacy of our data, or should we even want to roll them back? Well, the, the
1: desirability is, is clear. Once you, you began by asking about the, uh, our data being in the public domain, and uh, the whole point of GDPR and similar legislation, uh, such as uh, the Californian consumer protection legislation that was introduced uh, last year, but which is being increasingly uh, respected in other parts of the US. This is about making sure that individuals, consumers, citizens have control over what data is stored by private companies, how it's used, for what purpose, and their right to have it removed. If we lose control of that, then the data, our personal data, becomes able to be used by not just governments, Uh, But for private organizations for reasons that are driven by profit now People will accept these if they feel that they're getting some benefit at least to some degree Uh, But when it comes to the motivations of private companies, there's an incentive to get insights into personal data uh, for for profit purposes. So for example, if there were aspects of your lifestyle uh, that you don't didn't want to be disclosed to an insurance company, but an insurance company could find out that they could uh, put you into a category of someone that was higher risk for something, uh, you could end up being charged uh, higher insurance premiums in a, ways, a way that hadn't been disclosed and wasn't transparent. Uh, private companies seeking to hire, hire candidates or select candidates for a particular job could get access to personal data, your private history, your private activities that you hadn't authorized, but they could use that to influence their decision about the kind of person that they wanted working. So the goal of this this legislation is to let people control what data gets shared, what can be done with it, and what can't be done with it, and their right to have it withdrawn uh, from unauthorized use.
0: Let me ask you about when this goes wrong. Just this week in Wales, 13,000 letters were sent out to, uh, to the wrong address telling people um, you're at risk of uh, coronavirus and therefore you can go to the front of the line at the uh, supermarket, things like that. And they were sent to, to the previous address at which those people had lived. So out of 80,000 letters that were sent out, 13,000 went to the wrong place and the government uh, said, uh, oh, we're sorry about that. How often does that kind of thing happen, and how damaging is it to our privacy?
1: Uh, the question of the question of how often it happens is is hard to answer. But the regulations that are in place, and uh, and let's just talk more widely about a culture in which organisations or even government departments are more accountable for what they do with personal data. This means that such incidents are supposed to be reported. They're supposed to be disclosed to. Uh, A data protection uh, authority in the government Uh, most most governments have one and GDPR says that you that organizations and indeed authorities need to have a responsible officer Uh, these such breaches need to be reported and disclosed within a particular time frame and there are penalties for for not doing so the fact is that that the rise of awareness of the value of data, both commercially and for, for people's private freedoms and and, and privacy uh, is becoming more widespread, which is why the, there's the growing awareness of the tension that this current crisis brings between the need to preserve public health, which is unquestioned when people's lives are at stake, uh, and the need to make sure that any information that's gathered about people in the current situation Uh, is carefully managed and not used for other purposes, whether it's deliberate or accidental, uh, once the crisis is over.
0: Well, let's look at that. What effect might these changes have on everyday life for citizens once this is all over? How much will our data privacy have changed?
1: Well, we can expect that the use of these these contact tracing apps is going to be extremely widespread, starting right now. Uh, It's already happening. What that means is it, it sort of opens the door to people being more accepting of the fact that their movements are, are tracked and they will trust governments and trust the responsible authorities to be using that information uh, in a responsible way. But if you think about the way in which the use of social media has exploded, exploded people share and take for granted sharing more and more insights into their private lives on a forum and using a platform and infrastructure where they don't know who has access to the data. They don't know where the data is being stored. Uh, Very few people, unless they're brilliant technical specialists, understand the complexity of the uh, infrastructure that Facebook uses uh, to manage its services, let alone Amazon with all of the, another example, eBay of all the shopping activity. What this opens the door for is people being more accepting of sharing more and more information and using more and more applications Uh, which are being offered ostensibly to make their lives easier. And I'm I'm no different from anyone else in enjoying the benefits of these services, especially when we're in this lockdown environment. Uh, It's hard to imagine how difficult this experience and how different this experience would be uh, if it was 15 years ago when we weren't able to take for granted having all these facilities. Uh, But the danger is that people start to accept the fact that they carry around a smartphone which has these tracking applications, uh, but they're not paying attention and there isn't enough scrutiny applied to what's happening to that data and who has access to it and the purposes that the, the insights are being used for. As an extreme case, there are already situations in China, and try to imagine, try to imagine this, where the smartphones that we have, the applications that we're talking about, we have these by choice, no one is forcing us to have them. When we talk about a smartphone, it's, it's not really a phone. It's an incredibly powerful handheld computer that just happens to still have uh, a phone facility built into it. Some of our grandparents, uh, we've given them simple phones that actually have numeric keys on them that just make phone calls and do nothing else. Uh, but in parts of China, uh, there are situ- places where people have to have a smartphone. They're not being asked whether they want it or not. They have to have it so that their movements are tracked. Uh, There's a very nice article that was published on uh, the BBC News website, uh, which is an anecdotal tale about a a student who was confined under lockdown uh, in his apartment in Taiwan. uh, And when his mobile phone, he had one of these tracking applications When his mobile phone ran out of battery and went offline, he had officials rushing to his door within the hour, uh, demanding to know where he was. He was supposed to be in his apartment. And when his phone died, they assumed that he'd uh, left his apartment illegally, breaching a, a control regulation. And it's hard to imagine, but becoming closer, potentially, situation in which we are told that we must have a smartphone in order to conduct day-to-day life uh, and that that phone must have certain applications activated uh, in order to be functioning legally and getting getting interacting in civil society. If that had, takes place that has to be something that people are choosing to do, uh, not something that's imposed by stealth uh, by governments and especially driven by by private sector interests
0: in all this what role can the European investment bank take do you think
1: this is a very important question because the EIB is one of the high-profile European institutions that, especially as a member of the Eurogroup is emerging as one of the key players in the rescue plan that is being uh, put together to try to help the European economy to recover now, something that is little understood and has been overshadowed by this crisis is that in February of this year, just two months ago, uh, the European Commission, on behalf of the EU, published a, multi-year, a new multi year data strategy encouraging the digitalization of every aspect of, of EU society for the benefit of uh, civil and, and economic prosperity. Now. Hardly anyone noticed this because the news was starting to come in about the, uh, the impact of the virus. But this has as a huge component of it uh, a very big focus on data and a very big focus on artificial intelligence. The goal in this data strategy is to create a single market, market for data uh, where data is flowing within the EU and across sectors uh, with re- full respect for privacy and data protection where rules for access are fair, but where there's an enormous benefit to the European economy as a global player because of this new data economy. But given the fears about the misuse of data, uh, the EU also set up, uh, a new has launched a strategy on the use of artificial intelligence. Uh, it had a working group on investigating how to produce trust, how to ensure trust in the use of artificial intelligence, Uh, and these were published in two white papers that unfortunately uh, seem to have been overlooked with all of the focus on the crisis. One white paper on AI is called the European approach to excellence and trust. So the answer to the question is that the EIB can play a really important role in ensuring that when it's evaluating the loans that it provides to counterparties, it takes into account not just uh, the usual know your counterparty and anti-money laundering uh, due diligence investigations about where the money is going to, but also to ensure uh, that the organizations that are benefiting from the lending will be aware of and respecting European standards and regulations uh, on the use of data uh, to ensure that uh, the legal and ethical practices um, are respected. The EIB can emerge as a leader in the area of data ethics making sure that the not just the letter but the spirit of these regulations and the principles of preserving data privacy and protection are not just respected but help to be established throughout the European economy and society.
0: Thank you, Dennis Kessler, Head of the Data Governance Unit at the European Investment Bank. This is Does This Change Everything from the European Investment Bank, the EU Bank.